Welcome to Cursed Objects, a podcast about cultural history, politics and tat. With me, Dr. Cassidy, historian and broadcaster, I think. <laughs> there was a big question mark over that, wasn't there? You've done broadcasting. I've done Cursed Objects. <laughs> There's also an excellent Radio 4 programme, which I believe is still on the BBC website on iPlayer which you can listen to, in which Kasha presents her academic work from her PhD. So exciting. Yeah, I, I'm actually also, I'm Dan Hancocks, I'm Kasha's agent, um, and also in my spare time, a writer and uh, editor, and what else do I do? Look after my cats. Yeah, I'm doing doing some opinion editing at The Guardian at the moment. Don't pitch to me, I won't read it. No, just kidding. Um yeah, welcome to Cursed Objects, uh, where every week one of us brings in an object that has been unsettling their sense of the world, and together we try and work out what it is that's so unsettling about that object. We discuss its origins and the world it came from, and uh, what is wrong with it. It's sort of like a cursed show and tell, I would say. 100%. I think that's kind of the image we're going for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good branding. <laughs> This week we're actually in Kasha's house, which is very exciting, rather than doing it over Zoom from the discomfort of lockdown. And that means only one thing, that we both have 17 mugs of tea in front of us. <laughs> Kasha, what, what flavours have you got there? I can see she's got four drinks, I'm not joking. <laughs> I've got uh, orange and cinnamon. I've got a regular uh, linden tree blossom. Oh, yeah, one of those. Getting, that's related to your Eastern European roots, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's it's big Eastern European vibes because <laughs> okay. you can get lots of like really. Oh no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent on tea, but yeah, yeah you yeah. can get really really great tea in Eastern European shops for super cheap. But mm. it's like medical tea, so Ooh. I'm actually gonna open, I'm actually gonna do a side hustle, which is cash teas teas. <laughs> oh my god, why yeah. did I ever think of that before? Also, relatedly. Why not sign up to our Patreon where you could listen to such episodes as the one that I've just thought of, which is a Blessed Objects episode about Kasha's favourite type of tea, <laughs> in which we delve into all the Eastern European types of tea. No, really, our Patreon is only four quid a month. You'll get special exclusive episodes and lots of other extra content. Join the literally tens of people that have already done it <laughs> um, and become become part of the crew, help us support, support us making this podcast. There's no adverts on it apart from those for tea, seemingly. Um, but I'll let Kasha take it away because it's her week this week with her cursed object. Yeah, so I think it's great that we're in uh, my house because I'm going to show something that typically hangs on a wall, although not on my wall, ever since I was gifted this. <laughs> it's been kind of hidden away. Um, you're all in for a treat because I have brought in an object that is definitely kind of up there and up for the title of most cursed object I think we've ever discussed. Oof. So it's a wall calendar, and while these don't typically unsettle us, because they're usually pictures of like boy bands or like RSPB sponsored birds, can a bird be sponsored by the RSPB? 
I don't. I don't or do they just I, I they you, just stand birds? They just love you've birds. slightly misunderstood how the RSPB <laughs> function. It's not. They're not like they don't have like a sponsor's logo across the chest of the bird or anything. Um, but yeah, they're they're just generally backing birds. They're just backing <laughs> pro birds. Bird. Pro Take bird. a pro bird position. Yeah. Um, but this calendar is definitely not backing birds. Uh, <laughs> it's backing so it's backing someone else. And on the front of it. There is the steely, blue-eyed gaze of one of the most powerful politicians in the world and most probably one of the richest, although we will never know because rich people and especially rich politicians are mm. incredibly adept at hiding their wealth. Yeah. So we may never know, but yeah. anyway. So I'm talking, of course, about Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, then prime minister, then president. I think I got that in the right order. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds right to me, yeah. And I was gifted it in the Christmas of 2017 by my brother. And basically it's because I'm fairly political. So my family just take the absolute piss out of me. <laughs> <laughs> by just getting you just getting merch me. with any politician <laughs> on it at all. Just like, here you go. <laughs> like And just like watching me open it and watching me squirm. Like yeah, my... Yeah. Like I borrowed a, no, my cousin borrowed a fiver off me and you know, the new fiver has a Churchill on it. Oh and God, when he, it yeah. does, doesn't it? Yeah. And when he gave it back to me, there was just a little note on it that just said, cash is best, mate. And you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know why he's doing it, but like, obviously it's, it's hilarious. Like, I think yeah, it's yeah. so funny. Like you can't have politics like ours and not expect to be taking the piss out no, of occasionally. Sure. <laughs> I might have to jump on this wave myself and I'm, I'm now thinking about your Christmas present and whether there's like, like a really obscure backbench Tory MP, like. Teresa Villiers can you get like a Teresa Villiers sort of pencil sharpener or something <laughs> like from her website I'm gonna look into this and get back to you thank you yeah um <laughs> I really look forward to that but I'm also, <laughs> sure, yeah. also, I feel like I'm gonna be drowning in it this this yeah. <laughs> Christmas there are so many Tory MPs to pick yeah yeah true um okay so I want to play a quick game with you Dan okay I might take a little while uh, because I the entire calendar is in Russian, so I don't actually know <laughs> don't actually know what the months are. But I've kind of worked it out. It's all in like Cyrillic, so I've sure. kind of worked it out. Yeah, how's so, your Cyrillic? Sorry. Yeah, not not great. Non-existent. Not great. Yeah, not like great. interestingly, like I can speak Polish, and that is perfectly suited to the Cyrillic alphabet. But because yeah. Poland were like, "Fuck you," is that why? Is that why yeah. Poland? Oh. Our alphabet just doesn't work for the Polish words. Oh, I see. There's, there's so it many probably like, should be in Cyrillic yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of its like linguistic origin. And I respect that. I respect <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they were just yeah, like, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. We will actually make life harder for ourselves because of our geopolitical leanings. Fair enough. So what I want you to do is I want you to pick a month and then I want you to have a guess what Putin is doing <laughs> no in the pit. And I'll give Fantastic. you three options, right? Okay, so yeah. option one is fishing. Yeah. Option two is in nature, okay. so in forests, etc. Yeah. And option three is on a boat. And admittedly, there is some overlap because the theme of 2018's calendar clearly was nature slash fishing slash boat. <laughs> but you get an extra point if you can guess if he's topless or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fucking, oh my gosh. Okay. Um, brilliant. Okay, right. so wait, so I have to choose a month choose a and month. then choose a, a, a sort of task. Choose well. a month, choose a task, an extra point if you go for topless or not. Okay. So I'm going to go, I feel like his boat boating life surely is going to be concentrated around the summer months. Thinking about like a Werner Herzog film I once saw about like Siberia in the summer. 
you know like you couldn't go fishing in the winter in russia right like unless well anyway don't i mean don't give me any clues i'm going to go with august on a boat topless god the suspense <laughs> is killing me while Cash attempts to read the cyrillic on the back <laughs> <laughs> on a boat you said yeah on a boat topless in august okay so he's not on a boat but Boom. he is topless yes and he is crouching down. I think we could class this as nature, although he's not in like a forest. It's kind of, I'd say he's on a shoreline. Okay. Crouched down, topless, and he's just taken off his sunglasses. <laughs> like almost the kind of like, you know, like, kind of like the Fonz action shot. Got a cad and a bounder. You know, and he's yeah. kind of, he's kind of like crouched down and he's just taken off his sunglasses <laughs> and he's slightly looking up, but he is topless. Okay. So you've got Cute. one point. You've got okay. one point All for right. that. Can I have another go? Yeah, yeah, you've got two more. Oh, I've got two more guesses. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go. When would you go fishing in Russia? Let's go with April fishing and fully clothed. So <laughs> he is fishing yeah. and he looks absolutely chuffed. He has just <laughs> caught a large fish. He's yeah. on a lake. Yeah. There's a there's a, a kind of mountain scene in the background. He's holding a fishing rod in one hand, mm -hmm. and with the other, he is kind of you know admiring his catch, which is a fairly <laughs> you know it's not it's not the biggest fish on here, but it's it's fairly large. A carp, possibly. And he looks chuffed, really thrilled. He's got sunglasses on, <laughs> a little kind of not cowboy hat, but kind of that style. The idea that he's a cool dude is one yeah. that there's strong cool <laughs> dude energy here. Isn't isn't something I would have necessarily guessed having. And I should say at this point, I've never been to Russia, so my sort of knowledge of and experience of Putin as an icon or whatever is. Uh, you know, what you would expect from anybody else who lives in the West, basically. Mm. Wouldn't have thought he was like a, a Fonzarelli kind of chap. But this yeah. has got kind of strong dad Fonzarelli energy. <laughs> like, you know, he's like got this smile on his face and he's yeah. wearing these kind of, I mean, they're not wraparound glasses, but they could also shame, be shame. kind of like... Yeah. <laughs> that would have been, that would, I'd like to see him as a surfer, sort of, sort yeah. of ski, ski, board, ski, sort of, you know, snowboarding. Yeah, yeah. Right, I have one more guess but to wait, make. Um, but I just oh, want to say that you didn't get the extra point because he is topless. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and you can actually see his cross, <laughs> his cross pendant. Ooh, He's showing yeah. us his cross pendant. So he is topless during during this. Is he smiling? He is He is smiling. He's yeah. thrilled. Okay. He's just caught a fish. He's yeah, thrilled. Yeah, Wouldn't yeah. you be? Yeah, no, sure. Fair enough. Okay, so so a couple of points, but no more so far. Yeah, yeah. Okay, final guess then. I can't wait to see these photos because obviously they're being shielded from me at the moment because I'm I'm still the game is still very much in play. <laughs> I'm gonna I want to I just want to know I really want to know what he's doing in December, so I'm gonna have a go at it. I would guess that he's in nature in December, and surely he is fully clothed, <laughs> <laughs> unless there's some sort of like. Polar Bear Club breaking the ice on Christmas Day sort of thing going on. So he so he is in nature. Here's mm. what I would describe as in nature. There's a buck coming, which worries me. Are you about to tell me he's got his top off? No, no. He's, <laughs> <not>. <laughs> he's actually wearing scuba diving gear. <laughs> this is actually probably maybe the most clothed because he's got his head and ears. And you can only see the kind of small circle around his face. Little sort of sort of yeah. baby cherubic face. Yeah, he's got a watch on the outside. And even though he's kind of emerging from the water, I want to say he is in nature because yeah. he's not on a boat and he's I, and he's not fishing. So yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah. know how else to class this. 
Can you give us a tally now of how many how many topless photos are there out of the twelve months? There are four out of out of that's yeah out of twelve. That's there quite are four. a lot, isn't it? And this is this is the twenty eighteen calendar. Um, what yeah. what um, how old was he at this point? So he's actually <laughs> he's actually the same age as my mum, right? And he's currently sixty nine. I'm sure your mum but... will appreciate the comparison. <laughs> 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 mum, please don't do a calendar. <laughs> And he is, he was a sprightly 65 at the time. Right, 65. 65 is quite an age to be going topless. We're not into body shaming or ageism in this podcast, but I'm I'm surprised, I'll say that much. There's a lot of camo involved as well, isn't there, which... I can barely see him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is a problem for a a calendar that is specifically designed around one person uh, as, as the subject matter. Extraordinary scene. So yeah, there's a lot of fishing going on. There's some binoculars in one of the months. Boat I like driving. January, he's got a very cheeky sort of smirk on. He's got a little. He's got a little branch in his top pocket. <laughs> oh, is it? Isn't he's, yes, yeah, he, a little he has, branch yeah. in his top pocket in in January, and I really like February because he's kind of mid strut along yeah. a kind of topless again, topless, obviously, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as he always would be in February. Is and he's he... got a kind of power strut on because yeah. he's kind of one hip is kind of slightly jutting out, so mm. it's almost like he's kind of mid. Mid catwalk, mid catwalk yeah, vibe, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's kind of looking, looking out into the distance. But yeah, he looks very kind he's of sashaying away. He's what's happening quite simply, quite simply. <laughs> yeah, so okay. it's kind of like it's weird because it kind of plays on this idea of campness, while like in actual practice, his like policies are seriously harming the lives of the LGBT people in mm, Russia. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if our, you know, beloved sort of mate podcast, um, bad gays, would be interested in exploring. Putin's sort of uh, latent homoeroticism, or if that's a bridge too far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so calendar, the story. Yes, um, hit me. So I received this calendar in the December of 2017, obviously for the upcoming year of 2018. Most probably because my brother found them circling on social media at the time, particularly mm-hmm. in kind of like memes. I think there was a bit of a thing in the West and it's like always reported on in like CNN and stuff like, isn't this crazy? There's a Vladimir Putin calendar. Right. I think in a way because to think that maybe one of our politicians might have something like this feels incredibly alien, you know, mm-hmm. like it seems alien to me and wild to me that like maybe... I don't know, George Osborne might mm. have a calendar or Nadine Dorries sure. might get a might get I a don't cow. want to see either of them topless fishing, no. And <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think mate I think it is sort of something that we associate with leaders of other countries. And one thing that I was thinking about when I was on my way over here, knowing only what the object was but not having seen it, was was the sort of maybe sort of low-key or possibly high-key orientalism that is sort of mm. at play when we think about these, uh, this sort of paraphernalia, this tat that you get about foreign leaders, uh, particularly when it's something to do with the leadership cult, you know? Yeah. And the, the idea that, like, there's no way that the rational, upstanding, you know, Western people, uh, the, where, the birth of the Enlightenment would, you know, lower themselves into this sort of herd-like worshipping veneration of, like, of a leader, particularly one who is, you know, so clearly a despot and an authoritarian. Again, something that we are far too sensible for in our part of the world. And maybe that's why these sort of news stories end up cropping up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To begin with. And you know what, particularly around Russia, because there's such a long-standing history of the West of kind of, like, writing Russia off 
as like authoritarian from like from its inception, you know, before mm. it had czars mm. and kind of prolonged serfdom and then it had communism mm. and then it had, now it's got like Putin, you know, there's this idea that there is this kind of historical trajectory of these leaders that inspire kind of like these despotic leaders that yeah. inspire like veneration, but it's really heavily rooted as you say, completely in a kind of because the, Orientalism that kind of sees Russian people as like dupes and unable yeah, to kind of like be, critique their because they're a backwards people, like um, in with, air commas, with, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 with in heavy air commas because they're seen as a backwards people with backwards culture, ultimately, yeah. um, and 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 actually just not as bright, you know, and therefore mm. unable to sort of see the nuances um, in any political leader. Um, and and only to sort of blindly worship them ultimately. And you know what? There was actually something about this. So P Peter the Great of Russia kind of mm. wanted to move Russia further away from its kind of uh, its kind of Eastern influence and kind of closer to the West. So there is this idea that even in the kind of history, there is mm. you know there's maybe something internal there about like uh, I don't I don't know whether I can articulate this well, but you know the idea that the Western model is aspirational. Basically, it's like yeah. as simple as that in a way. Well, even I mean, even the even the Bolsheviks um, in their first sort of flush of you know revolutionary energy, there was a lot of talk about the sort of backwards nature of the Russian peasantry, mm. which was the majority, vast majority of the country and the people that represented them, even though they were socialists or communists as well, the socialist revolutionaries, the SRs, there was this sort of, it's not self-loathing, it was, it was more just like the vanguardist Bolshevik revolutionaries who lived in the cities, viewing the rest of the country as something borderline sort of feral basically mm. and that in order to achieve well a revolution but you know a successful revolution but also just to progress and sort of you know to function better as a society russia had to shed some of its russianness yeah it ultimately. had to be like a west like western modernity had to kind of sure and like you know marx is you know marxism is is not from russia is it? yeah you know, it's like <laughs> it's from western europe it's from it's from germany so back to the calendar of now yeah these calendars kind of sparked I guess like also, so there's actually also a double layer to this Orientalism that you were just talking about. Particularly, it was reported in the December of 2018 that in Japan, Putin calendars were outselling those of local celebrities. <laughs> and I think I kind what? of wonder, yeah, and I kind of wonder whether this was written mainly because of the pun Russian off the shelves, as in rushing off the shelves. Please tell me you didn't invent that yourself. <laughs> no, 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 that was okay, the name good. of the article. <laughs> and also it was written in December, which is obviously... Not just a slow news news month, but also yeah. a month when many calendars are sold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there was like quite a lot of weird calendar news, like but also alarmist calendar news of that year. Really? Like yeah, like there was fears that um there were worries about the fact that Mussolini calendars were gaining traction in Italy, wow. and also fears that Stalin calendars were gaining traction in parts of Russia. Oh, so there's wow. a real crisis around calendars, which I think would make an excellent undergrad essay yes. <laughs> for anyone who's listening to this who's Going an undergrad. Back to December 2017, which for some reason was a high point in like, I mean, either you've been sort of low, so like secretly subscribing to global calendar news or like this was just a particular moment of like an uptick. Yeah, how, how peculiar. Isn't everyone just using like Google Calendar or their iPhone now anyway? But, uh, but yeah, sorry, not, not for me to write off an entire industry that's producing such valuable content. <laughs> for us. <laughs> yeah, for us, above everything else. <laughs> so um, The World, which is a US-based news platform, 
wrote about the phenomenon um, in 2019. And according to them, the calendars show images of Putin looking strong but likable and are put up internationally and in some offices in Moscow as a kind of joke because obviously the pictures seem kind of overblown and macho. And, but in regional parts of Russia, in complete seriousness, because in many places, even after 20 years of running the country, and obviously there have been serious allegations and I think proof of kind of kleptocratic behaviours yeah. and serious corruption. Yeah. He's still really, really popular in mm. parts of Russia. Yeah, yeah. And I did some digging and there's a really excellent series on the BBC called Russia, Putin in the West, kind of documentary series, just a four-parter mm. that's still on iPlayer. Cool. It kind of highlights the fact that in his first couple of years, he introduced a um, cut to income tax to 13%, but for everyone, mm -hmm. including the super rich or like, you know, the mm. not so rich. And this actually meant that oligarchs started actually paying their taxes. <laughs> so because of that, like, you know, people's pen people started getting their pensions. Wow. People started, you know, things in Russia started to move after like what felt like a very unstable and kind of stifling period. Mm. But also that early part of his kind of rain, I guess we want, we could call it, Russia's oil increased in value by like a huge amount. Yeah. So the Russian economy grew for eight years straight because of the high oil prices, basically. Mm. But also I think, you know, there's this idea that he's kind of, he kind of tackled the oligarchs in that kind of first bit of his kind mm. of rule, rule. I mean, that's not the right word in the, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but then I think kind of as that's, as those kind of successes have kind of, as time's gone on, because he's literally been in power for like over 20 years now. Mm. He's like one of the longest serving, I think the second longest serving politician and the first is maybe the Belarusian right. <laughs> despot. A great person to be beaten in yeah. second place by, is it? Yeah, exactly. But I think now he's kind of really crafted an image for himself as this kind of likable character of the people, but also someone who champions conservatism and also champions the idea of a strong Russia, mm. even though it's his behavior directly that has weakened Russia, especially mm. economically by mm. like, for example, the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Mm. But most people that support Putin are kind of charmed by that idea that he protects the idea of Russianness in the home. So through mm. the idea of being critical around like, Gen like the idea of gender mm. and sexuality, mm -hmm. but he protects Russia, Russian interests abroad by invading places like the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of like, I, I guess like popularity around yeah, him. Yeah, around that sort of paternalism, yeah, mm. both in the domestic sphere mm. and the geopolitical international sphere as well. That's a really, yeah, really interesting dual kind of attack or like sense that he's sort of defending your interests as an as an ordinary russian against against what is outside your walls whether that's your borders or you like the walls of your home essentially exactly yeah i guess the fact that his policies seem so reactionary and so uh, despotic in many yeah. ways yeah, yeah. and incredibly aggressive especially on a foreign policy level i think the fact that that exists kind of sheds a kind of uncomfortable light on this calendar particularly yeah because, and, and to kind of explain that, or to kind of think about that, I want to describe to you my favourite Adam Curtis clip. Okay, sure. <laughs> I know that you didn't think that we were going here. But no, here I didn't, yeah. But... So, yeah, it, it featured in Charlie Brooker's 2014 White mm -hmm. at Christmas in 2014, mm. I think. And it was on the idea of Oderism. Mm. And he states, 
So much of our current news is bewildering and confusing, to which our only response can be, oh dear. But that defeatist response has become a central part of a new system of political control. I need to do it in more of a kind of Adam <laughs> Curtis way. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Hang on, I'll put on the burial. Yeah. <laughs> and to understand how this is happening, you need to look to Ru- Russia and Vladislav Surkov. End of the sentence. All right, sorry, I thought you were waiting for me to come in with... And uh, Vladislav Surkov is one of Putin's key, or was was one of Putin's key political advisors. He recently got sacked, I believe. So they've kind of fallen out of favour. But his whole kind of thing about him, so he's called the grey man. And the thing is, even his sacking, a lot of people are kind of going, well, it looks like he's fallen out of favour, but has he really fallen out of favour? Because this is something, it's not like he hasn't left jobs before. It's not Mm. like he hasn't kind of moved away from the proximity of power before, because that is kind of central to how he... I guess creates destabilization sure. within Russia. Yeah. His whole political I his whole political idea is to create a sense of destabilization so that there can be no effective opposition because mm. people don't know what they're opposing. So what he did was and he kind of incorporated ideas from the avant-garde kind of art world into Russian politics and it turned Russian politics into a kind of spectacle into like the theater mm. into not the, not a actual theater but you know, theatre, the idea of theatre, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, and particularly how he did this was he funded groups that were pro-Putin, like pro-Putin youth groups, but he also funded anti-Putin groups. And then he told everyone that he was doing this. Yeah. So no one knew what was real and what wasn't real. So I, um, I remember this uh, Adam Curtis clip. And I was completely fascinated by Surkov as well. Um, I think I have I have a as as some listeners may know, I have a slightly fraught relationship with Adam Curtis's work and don't always like it. I think the counterpoint, if I can push back on sort of that idea, because that idea is fascinating and it's enticing. I think the problem we won't get into the, what I think is the problem with Adam Curtis because we'll be here all night. But I think what he tends to like to do is to find a shadowy puppet figure behind the scenes who's responsible for everything as a way of telling a story. Hard agree. Because it's like, a and even his most recent series, which I thought had some wonderful moments in it and lots of it was really fascinating, all of it zeroed in on some shadowy figure behind the scenes of momentous events in world history. It's not that I don't think Surkov is really interesting and that, that like, the fact you know those those are facts that he was funding contradictory op- like groups at the same time just to confuse the hell out of people and that he had indeed borrowed techniques from the avant-garde but what i think adam curtis misses out with that sort of storytelling and it is storytelling it's not mm. really journalism is that the other way that putin established like establishes an ever tighter grip and, and an ever sort of more hard line or authoritarian regime is by like literally locking up opposition figures and having even ever greater impunity around the actions of the of the state and by murdering journalists you know like that that's happened oh, to it, to it. Yeah. like basically there's a lot while Adam Curtis zeroes in on these absolutely fascinating figures there's also like some much more prosaic and less entertaining mm. stuff that's going on that, that, that is also like you know, helping establish him as a sort of an autocrat, if not not a dictator, but I would say certainly an autocrat at the same time. And it, in any case, it all helps shape this 
a sort of cult of leadership around him, which makes this object that we're talking about today funny to begin with, and then quite dark when you start to step back and think about it, because this cult of leadership is associated with bolstering someone who does not have an effective opposition because, you know, those people are in jail. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. Because uh, even in that little clip, he, he says, um, Vladislav Surkov, a hero of our time, and then doesn't elaborate on how he's a hero, <laughs> and then paints him as not a hero. Yeah. But it's like, it's because detailing or kind of explaining a shadowy puppet figure is really, it's much better storytelling yes. than basically being like, <laughs> Oh yeah, like this this happened cuz it's not that no one cares, but if 15 activists get locked up, yeah. these are things that've been happening historically forever. Yeah. But there is something about this kind of like compelling storytelling that kind of sucks you in. Which I think actually implicates Adam Curtis not to again make this about him, but it implicates him in that theater, you know? He's part mm. of that spectacle as well, mm. frankly, cuz he's 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 doing the more glamorous th- version of events rather than the slightly more prosaic version of events about yeah, like murdering investigative journalists or, uh, yeah, locking up activists, banning protests, launching repeated assaults on the free press uh, and on civil society. You know, the, all of the things that make up a democracy have been gradually kind of chiselled away out over the last 20 years, effectively. And that's a much bigger and more complicated story to tell, basically. 100%. It definitely is. But I think there's something that proves compelling in the way that we think about historical narratives and how really disparate and different things can kind of connect. So, so for example, there's the idea that this idea of shape-shifting politics is something that I feel, I actually do feel incredibly strongly at the moment, you know? Mm. This idea that we're told that there's a culture war going on and that we should be angry that a statue got pulled down, but not angry that children aren't get, going to get fed this Christmas. You know, there's this idea that there is that there are news stories, and this is nothing new, you know. It's not new that there are news stories that kind of pull your attention away from other much more serious ongoing issues. Mm. But I think that there is something interesting in the idea that we are told about very disparate, very different stories, Mm. and that there is our response often to all of this stuff happening is a kind of despondency and a kind of sadness and a kind of, oh dear, that's sad, but there's nothing I can do. And I I think think that despondency is, is partly about a lack of effective alternatives and you know plausible alternatives that is uh, in the political sphere and you know that's the case in our country at the moment thanks to the state of the Labour Party and our and first past the post as well to an extent I suppose you could say but it's also it's the case in Russia because of all of those assaults on democracy mm. <laughs> on the on the opposition parties on uh, investigative journalists and a free press and so on at the same time you know what other alternative is there but despondency but I think it would be hard to deny that there is a sense of, of I guess, the twisting of, tr- not the twisting of truth, but a kind of playing around with events that happen that's coming out of Russia. So there, it could definitely be seen in the kind of Ukrainian invasion where there was this idea of little green men, you know, that they were called mm. little green men that yeah. were like soldiers on the ground. And it's like, is this an invasion or is this just, you know, forced to kind of keep the peace? There's definitely this idea that there's a shape shifting, especially around, and there's always, it's always existed. So maybe that's the kind of... Sort of misinfo di- and disinfo, de- disinfo destabilising yeah. the sense of what is fact and what isn't. And I think, yeah. I think that's really taken on quite a compelling, I think quite a compelling imagery in the most, re- in like recent years, you know, mm. all of this stuff around 
Brexit and all of this kind of stuff about, around like Russian interference. Mm. Um, I mean, what do you think? Like, isn't the point around Russian involvement in Brexit that it's nonsense? <laughs> like well, it's yeah, it's yeah. largely it's largely fic it's largely fictitious or it's certainly been massively amplified from what I can make out by you know hardcore remainers who are understandably upset about the result of the 2016 election but uh, uh, in doing in being upset have sought an explanation beyond their borders as people have throughout history mm. sought to blame someone else i mean they're, mm. they're also blaming the people that voted leave obviously but it's a convenient mm. certainly a convenient truth for the people that organized the remain campaign and did it very very badly and had you know really underwhelming sort of front men as it were sort of to make the hey case. june sarpong and that guy who's <laughs> from marks and spencers <laughs> i was thinking of will straw but that's that's you you've outdone me with june sarpong <laughs> I mean, she's much more persuasive than Will Straw or Alan Johnson, the former Labour minister. But yeah, um, but n not not an all-star cast. Let's put it that way. Like exactly, I think Brexit happened because of a maelstrom of myriad reasons. One of them being, you know, austerity. Another being a kind of anti-EU bureaucratic sentiment. I think misplaced understandings of sovereignty and also. You know, xenophobia cannot be denied, but because it's hard, it's hard because we don't really know. We don't really have a grasp on the full kind of extent sure. of rush of Putin's power, particularly, especially because yeah. like we don't know how much he owns. <laughs> we yeah. don't know how rich he is. You know, we don't know so much about him. There is this kind of he makes for a really useful shadowy puppet master. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and that that essentially harks back to a sort of. It's is not Oriental, Orientalism per se, but it's 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 a rehashing of the Cold War essentially, and that is something that we've seen time and time again. You know, to be fair, Russia has made it easier with, for example, the Salisbury poisonings to to yeah. for, for certain uh, for certain members of the, you know for the British establishment ultimately to resurrect um, that sort of Russophobia. You know, reds under the bed. Could they be any less red? But that's that's sort of beside the point. And actually, even when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, you may recall that he was on... No, actually, he wasn't on Newsnight. There was a story on Newsnight in which he was depicted in a photoshopped Russian hat <laughs> because, um, you know, essentially, it's it's still very important for the establishment to delegitimise the British left by by implying that they're all useful idiots, which is, if you haven't heard that phrase, it's a phrase that was used during the Cold War to describe um, members of the British Communist Party mostly, but sometimes members of the British Labour Party who were, you know, making the case for the Soviet Union, even at its most heinous under Stalin, were, you know, denying the existence of gulags and sort of the death of millions in, in Ukraine and, and so on. Those, those people were called useful idiots and it's still an important part of sort of capitalist, sort of Western capitalist ideology to associate Russia with the 20th century Soviet Union. It harks back to what we were saying about Orientalism at the beginning. You know, there will always be autocracy in this land of pe thick peasants, essentially, and they will always be the enemy, essentially, like because, you know, we need one.
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's important. It's important that we have one and they're located to the east. That's where the enemy is, you know. That's so interesting. I think, so there's a few things that I picked up there that I just thought was so, so interesting. This idea that like Russia is archaic when actually I think all evidence kind of shows that they have a better grasp on like, on like technologies and utilizing technologies <laughs> than we give them credit for particularly. But also this idea of useful idiots, I think is so important to unpack. So like mm. there's an idea that useful idiots are like left wing kind of like Soviet Union supporting like groups basically. But also I think, and I kind of want to tie this a little bit more to like consumer capitalists, right? Who laugh at these images, who go like, ha ha ha, Putin's riding a bear again. I've got the calendar, yeah. you know, that kind of like laugh while the world burns, you know, right. that kind of, that kind of buy things like this calendar. And I guess one of the things that I was, I kind of worry about this calendar is that, and my ownership of it particularly. Well, I was just going to say, you're not describing your brother here or you, are you? Because well, no, <laughs> no, no, no. we, we have laughed at this calendar, yeah. <laughs> but it's okay because we're doing a very in-depth podcast about it afterwards. So. Yeah. <laughs> But it's like one of those. So only buy this calendar yeah, if you're yeah. gonna start. Yeah, yeah if you're gonna do a podcast. No, you're absolutely right though. Um, but I'll, no, I'll let you go on. But you know this this idea that it kind of legitimizes him for those. So if if you support Putin, this legitimizes him as a likable guy who goes yeah. fishing and you know fights bears. Yeah. You know, like all likable men do, right? Yeah, sure. But if you don't like him, it kind of creates him as a kind of caricature. And yeah. there was so much of this. I kind of want to interrogate that a little bit because I think it's a little bit lazy to just say like, oh, if you're not critiquing everything that you own in that way, mm. then you're supporting it. Mm. Because there was a lot of this discourse on Twitter, you know, the kind of like, don't call him Boris, his name's Boris, da 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 um, Dif Defecal yeah. Johnson yeah. or whatever it is. Wake it's up, a... sheeple, you know, a lot Don't... of wake up, sheeple energy about, about it. There's also like the infamous um, pre-2016 US election bit where um, the British comedian John Oliver decided the best way to delegitimize Donald Trump was by calling him Donald Trump. Because that's, I don't know, it's like the original version of the Trump name is this Eastern European name Trump or something. Mm. Um, and actually, he sounds a lot less impressive and macho if you call him Trump. <laughs> um, it's pathetic. Borderline, <laughs> it's borderline racist as well, actually. Like, very little is going to make, you know, people like ourselves sympathetic to the Trump family. But it was just such a weak, you know, tee-hee-hee liberal sort of mm. response to something that's serious import and important you know which mm. is not to say that political satire and political humor is is invalid it obviously isn't uh, it just that wasn't really the time or the place or the gag for me mm. you know donald trump's definitely one of the political leaders who's been like taking the piss out of and people laughed at him and then he became the president and everyone's like oh we're not laughing anymore you know this is definitely a kind of concern that was really, really strong in that mm. period when he was elected. A lot of kind of self-searching on the part of people that kind of laughed or or whatever. Yeah. And actually this brings to mind another another sort of way that we frame sort of autocrats, dictators, people with leadership cults, senior politicians in general in the 21st century. I was reminded of the, the bit in one of the middle series of Peep Show 
where Mark Corrigan is going out with Sophie. He's finally landed his sort of, you know, dream woman, Sophie, and she takes him out shopping and she's determined to make him a bit cooler than he was. And so she she suggests she holds up this T-shirt, which has like Mao's face on it. Mm-hmm. And, and and Mark Mark says something like, I'm not, I'm not wearing that. It's like he's responsible for the deaths of however many million people it is, the, the claim that Mark makes in that episode. He later refers to, I, I remember he says, you know, look, Sophie's good for me. She's dragging me into the 21st century with its meaningless logos and its ironic veneration of tyrants. <laughs> and it's just like, it's a line that really sticks in my head because... It speaks to a certain type of postmodernist, postmodern sort of all symbols and signs and images are just equally meaningless or meaningful. And there is no... just the shopping mall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's just the shopping and they're all available to buy. And it sort of doesn't really matter what they are. You know, probably probably wouldn't cross the line and have Hitler on a T-shirt with sort of, you know, green eyes or whatever but they they but everything up to and including Mao is sort of acceptable, I think. And I think this is kind of important because instead of being just like a fan calendar like one of like a boy band or whatever there is explicitly a relationship between not just politics with a small p but also politics with a big p because putin is a big p politician you know because his name is putin no i'm just kidding i mean do you want to do you want to just quickly say what like you mean by big p small p politics for people who didn't hear the references in series one of cursed objects So yeah, this is really important, especially for those who maybe missed season one, where we talk about the distinction and different scenarios where big P and small P politics intersect quite a lot. So for me, and this is just kind of how I understand it, big P politics relates to the norms, values and actions. So things like laws, legislations, etc. of the state and their representatives. So state leaders, the government and their connected institutions and organisations. In my definition and kind of like my understanding, I also include state adjacent organisations. So this could include big businesses as these lobby the government for things which then become or don't become laws. Mm -hmm. So big pharma or big tobacco aren't part of the state, but through lobbying have kept us smoking basically for like 100, 100 years. So that's how I understand big P politics. And then small P politics, on the other hand, is personal politics. It's how we organise our social worlds and our worldviews. It's written in our familial ties and our relationship with our communities. So the feminist mantra, the personal is political, really defines small P politics for me. So are you a woman who does most of the cleaning in your house? Well, you do that not because of random chance, but because cleaning has historically been assigned as women's work. And this continues to be replicated as an ideal in a range of messages and arenas. So it's in the my first cleaning set toys that we buy little little girls. To parents, whether kind of knowingly or not, asking girls to help around the house more than boys. Yeah. Other examples could be environmental politics. You know, do you recycle? If you do, if you're an avid recycler, you know, that's part of your small p politics. So to use this calendar as a further example, Putin and the punitive laws he creates represents 
big P politics. Now, our small P politics, so our personal politics and worldview, might be that Putin is a despotic-like figure to be mocked based on our understanding of Putin's big P political actions. So the criminalising of gay rights or harsh prison sentences for those who question the Russian state, often under the guise of what is called terrorism, but really is often just mild protest. Mm -hmm. Now, this calendar will typically be bought for the home or workplace, so it exists in the space of our small p political lives. So although it's about a big p politician, it almost perfectly illustrates this meeting of small p and big p politics. So, And also it depends on what kind of small p politics we have. So if you're someone who um, is uh, sympathetic to Putin's politics, his big p politics, then you'll look at this calendar and you'll see him wrestling a bear and you'll think, yeah, that aligns with my small with my small p politics worldview. You know, I do think men should wrestle bears. I do think that men should... Uh, go topless <laughs> in calendars. I don't know. Um, but, you know, if, if your views are anti-Putin's anti big P politics, you'll look at this and you'll kind of think, you know, how ridiculous. He's uh, kind of, it's it's part of pantomime. It's clearly a kind of joke. Um, it's something to be mocked. So anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is that small P and big P politics cross over a lot. But by trying to unpick which one is which, we're really using and developing our critical skills. And I think that's important because it means that we can add depth to our to our understanding of the world. And that's essentially all we're trying to do in this podcast, right, is add depth to our understanding of the world. I think it is worth us thinking about where the limits of irony are with our sort of the, our relationship with these sort of bits of iconography and stuff. I'm not someone who's, I know, I'm not going to like suggest that anybody that has something with Mao's face on should be ba banned or cancelled or whatever. Um, and the same goes for Putin. But it is... Um, it does make me feel uncomfortable, which I suppose is why we're doing this podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's like the cursed cursed object. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable yeah. object. Yeah. yeah, irony is such a, it's such a fine line, isn't it? Mm. There's such a fine line to irony. I don't think in owning this calendar, I am saying, oh, everything that Putin does is okay. And I'm just like laughing about yeah, it or whatever. Sure. It is like a, a joke almost played at my expense. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the layer, I mean, the meaning contained in the calendar is largely between you and your brother. Like, yeah, a, like yeah. a, an understanding between the two of you. Yeah. That neither of you, you know, neither of you think Putin is cool. Yeah. Um, both of you think this is funny. But also really, it's in a way, it's about you and your sort of like your politics that like he's taking the piss, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, by giving it you, to you to begin with. Yeah, 100%. And I don't, I don't think that, I think often the kind of scare stories, not scare stories per se, but, you know, the kind of fears around objects like this are rooted in the idea that people can't critique the or, or there yeah. aren't there aren't layers of meaning attached to objects which there are right that's what yeah. we kind of unpick in this entire podcast we yeah, kind of yeah. say that actually the objects that you think might mean one thing mean yeah. mean many many different things in different contexts yeah in different contexts and to different people and depending on who the individuals around that object are and you know whether yeah whether it's a the reason it's been bought to begin with mm. Can I suggest uh, something that I'd quite like you to watch that it relates to the sort of cult of leadership around Putin? Now, as I say, I haven't haven't ever travelled to Russia. I'd very much like to. I did study a, quite a bit of Russian history or Soviet history at, at university. 
So I don't, I don't know, I feel like I'm engaging with this object without really understanding in depth the feelings that people have in Russia about Putin. Mm. But I do know that they will be very complex and varied because it's a massive country, <laughs> you know, mm. with a million different political traditions from mm. like terrifying, like um, there's a, the national Bolshevists, for example, who are like a like weird combination of fascist and, and communist at the moment. Uh, there, there's a, a million other tradition, uh, religious and political sort of traditions feeding in here and actually religious iconography is maybe one other thing that we should think about when it comes to um, leadership cults. Um, but the, yeah, there's one particular Putin video that I think speaks to the strange nature of his, of what he means as a leader within Russia. And uh, the video title, I don't know, tell me if you've seen this before, Cash, I, I doubt you have, I don't know, it's quite obscure and it's 11 years old. The title is Putin Joins Hip Hop Battle for Respect. <laughs> so we're just gonna we're just gonna watch this here. I think I think we may edit it down a little so that you don't have to listen to us watching it. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, no. So, Kasha, what did you make of the uh, the video with with Putin uh, at the hip hop battle for respect? It raises a lot of. It's very funny, but also, <laughs> also, also, it surprised me. Right. My favorite bit is when uh, he, all of the kids around him are like bopping and like bopping their like hands, you yeah, know, yeah. hands in the air, and he's just dead. <laughs> Stony face watching. <laughs> completely <laughs> still, <laughs> surrounded by like teenagers who are presumably quite terrified of him, yeah. but also have been told by the, I'm guessing, the floor manager of this TV yeah. show, <laughs> you need to look like you're enjoying yourself, okay? And like, he's wearing a kind of like a kind of soft shell, shell jacket that's like not quite a bomber, but you know, it's kind yeah. of like a little thinner. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. What it sort of says to me is that. What I would read into that anyway, I'm not an expert in Putinism or Russian Russian culture and politics in the modern age, but what I would read into it is a sense that Putin is the the patriarch, the, the father figure. Patri patriarch in the non-religious sense, I don't know, maybe in the religious sense as well, because there he is down with the kids. Well, he's sort of not down with the kids because he's not, he's not wearing a backwards baseball cap or like... Mm you know, a massive gold chain or whatever. He's uh, he's there as the patriarch to commend, you know, what the youth are doing because if for some reason he associates hip-hop with clean living, which is an intriguing, <laughs> an intriguing pivot, <laughs> but fair enough if, if that's what you think. Um, you know, and, and steering our young people away from drink and drugs and towards, you know, athleticism and other sort of good values in, in, our, in our young people, which, frankly, it does have echoes of the Soviet kind of relationship between the leader and the people, mm. uh, where there's sort of an implied sort of father figure mm. um, sort of aspect to it. And actually, the, you know, the first, the first thing I thought of when we decided we were going to be doing this particular object today was some of the cult of leadership stuff around... Joseph Stalin that I remembered reading about during my degree and there's a particular book that I that I, was a really unusual approach to like um the cult of Stalin called Thank You Comrade Stalin it's by a historian called Jeffrey Brooks and it's about the culture of gift giving and the gift economy under under Stalin but then more widely 
about how that leadership cult was created. And Jeffrey Brooks does this by sort of an incredibly uh, close reading. I mean, you could probably tell me what this is called in academia, but like it's it's almost like a it's not a field study. It's like he's got one particular body of evidence that he's doing a very intense case study. Case study of yeah, there we go. Then um, of the of the Russian press during over a sort of twenty year period, basically doing quantitative and qualitative analysis of it. It's an attempt to unpick how Stalin was elevated from a position of being someone who was, you know, always had fun make it, made out of him as a sort of, like, he wasn't an impressive orator. Uh, he was embarrassed of his Georgian accent. He wasn't a great thinker like Trotsky was. He just wasn't really cut out to be a, a sort of great leader in terms of the the qualities we normally associate with leadership historically. So there's quite a job on there for the Soviet mm. state and for mm. the press that were in, you know, that were working essentially for the Soviet state, were on, you know, organs of the state in creating a public image for an individual human being, this man Joseph Stalin, that that would help cement his rule and indeed his increasingly despotic and brutal kind of grip over 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 the Soviet Union and the various states contained within it. It was and it was great to revisit this book, thank, which again is called "Thank You, Comrade Stalin," because it's sort of about the relationship between the individual and the state. Basically, you know, the 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 man Stalin is sort of standing in for the state in in a way. Um, he is the just a figurehead of the state in the same way that maybe the some of the you know the Jesus and Mary, you know, or the Holy Trinity are sort of you know representative of the of the vast and more complex sort of story of Christianity. And there's one, that, so I'll just read a, a one paragraph from that from that book, which kind of gives you a sense of how that transition happened in the 1930s, where Stalin was built up to be this this you know this uh, iconic figure that he became. And so I'm reading here on December the 30th, 1936, the official trade union newspaper Labour carried a front page picture as, of Stalin as Grandfather Frost, the Russian Santa Claus. Bright-faced, smiling children circled a New Year's tree decorated with schools, buses, planes, and other such gifts. And that gifts is in inverted commas there, in quote marks. The tree, first permitted in 1935, marked New Year's Day as a surrogate Christmas, because they weren't celebrating that. The picture signified Stalin's accession as the country's benefactor. Eight years later, in 1943... When the Red Army liberated Kharkov, Pravda carried a tribute to Stalin from grateful inhabitants. It said as, as, as follows, quote, Thank you, dear Marshal, for our freedom, for our children's happiness, for life. And what this book is about, essentially, is the construction of a relationship of gratitude and gift-giving. And part of this is about being outside of the capitalist economy, where you pay for things, mm. and therefore gifts become very important. Um, Obviously, people still did pay for things in the Soviet Union, but it's sort of, you know, it's that relationship with monetary value has changed somewhat, right? Mm. And consequently, it was understood, it was popularly understood, and the reason that the book is called Thank You, Comrade Stalin, um, I mean, I think that was taken from an actual postcard that was put out there into in the 1930s that said those exact words. Thank you. In fact, they said in full, thank you, Comrade Stalin, for a happy childhood. The idea is that Stalin, as representative of the state, has given these children their happiness and he has given prosperity 
He has provided, you know, bountiful fields and factories that work all day and all night long and a rich cultural life and a better education than you ever could have imagined. And, the, you know, the freedom to, you know, to work together with your comrades and create a, a better Soviet Union than you ever could have imagined under the Tsar, basically. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a debt of gratitude owed by the people to the, to the benevolent leader essentially mm. and that's what the leadership cult is attempting to create and consequently you know you could try and offer up gifts as the people to stalin but nothing you could you know almost like a offering sort of a, a sacrificial kind of gift mm. to the gods in in certain sort of pre you know pre-capitalist pre-feudal societies there's a there's definitely some resonance there but you're never going to be able to pay it back. You are always indebted to that leader, essentially. Mm. And that's, uh, I mean, it's a really interesting insight into how a, a leadership cult kind of can function. You know, the question that I always grappled with when I was studying that period at university, particularly the 1930s and 40s, when Stalin was in power, was like, how much did people really, really mm. believe this? You know, like, and how much were they just scared about getting sent scared, to the gulags? Or like, you know, I remember my tutor saying in answer to this ongoing and essentially unanswerable question, or it's not a question that you can answer with any conclusive kind of generalization. You, you know, there's never going to that's never going to be possible. But I remember my tutor once saying, like, well, you know, I think a lot of and she was she was of Russian descent. Um, I think a lot of people probably wanted to believe it because it was just easier. <laughs> you know, mm. like if you're given the choice between quietly dissenting and and actually buying into the leadership cult, you know, there aren't any options outside of that, really. Mm. Like, so, so perhaps, perhaps buying into it is the easier option. And actually, there's another bit in the book where, where Jeffrey Brooks, like, sums up sort of a dissenting view from, that was sort of mentioned by a Russian poet, I think, with the quote, you know, if you don't believe it, take it as a fairy tale. And what Jeffrey Brooks says is, you know, you can't really do that though you can't take it as a fairy tale when it infiltrates every area of your life when yeah. the picture of stalin is in every room it's actually possibly easier to believe it mm. yeah whether 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 people in russia today are doing that with with putin you know again it's very hard to like you know dissent happens in private spaces doesn't it like when it, we know as as it does in every kind of space where there's a lack of democracy a lack of freedom of expression a civil society that's been beaten down into nothing so that mm. you know all of the cultural and sort of civic institutions basically just become organs of the state and so on mm. that's so interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah you'd love this book okay so um i think that's where we're going to end thank you so much for tuning in i hope you don't get your own putin calendar we can kind of do that horrible work for you <laughs> But if you were to subscribe to our Patreon for only £4 a month, it's possible we could finally start making what has been called for for a long time, which is Dan and Kasha calendars, um, <laughs> which, we, which we can then I can't provide. Wait to, can't wait to see you fighting a bear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do I, have to, I feel like you should do that. You've got Eastern European heritage. Yeah, I could, de I could definitely take a bear. I could, oh, you could, could you? Confidence, man. The confidence, unbelievable. Uh, but no, seriously, do hit us up on Patreon, on our Twitter, which is Cursed Objects UK, on our Instagram, which is probably also Cursed Objects UK, um, and uh, and get in touch with us. You know, send us the stuff that you found online in whatever form it takes, and uh, please join us again for our next episode. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>